Uh, what a wonderful time of uh, singing and praise to our Lord on this Christmas season, which has been so uh, abused over the years and has become nothing more than a marketing strategy. Let us not make it that. Certainly nothing wrong with giving gifts to people because you love and care for them, but let's make sure that our giving is reminiscent of God's gift to us and that we not forget. I'll ask you to turn with me to John chapter 6. It's good to see folks visiting this morning. If you're a visitor today, we're very glad you're here and trust that you'll be blessed uh, by our time together as church and uh, worshiping with us. We are in a verse-by-verse study of John 6. This is, uh, this is message number 74 in the series, and uh, I have thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed uh, studying the Gospel of John. It is certainly a rich wealth of uh, part of God's Word. I'll call you to attention to uh, verse 54, and we'll read, we will read through <laughs> verse 59 at this point. Jesus said, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. <coughs> now we've been through this passage for many weeks now. And we have learned that Jesus has used multiple explanations in this passage to show these Jews who he is. He is the bread from heaven that must be assimilated into the life of a person or it will not affect anything. Like the intake of food and drink, they must feed on and drink, in a spiritual sense, drink Christ for eternal life. Eating and drinking is equated with both coming to, looking to, and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. St. Augustine said, Believe and you have eaten. I like that. Just believe and you've eaten. You've drank. They didn't get the meaning of his words. 
They didn't understand that he was speaking of the life that comes through the shedding of his blood and the sacrifice of himself on the cross. These Jews did not understand that. They were blinded to it. They did not have ears to hear it. They were deaf to what he was saying. The Old Old Testament sacrifices were always blood sacrifices. Leviticus 17 verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, God said. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. On the other hand, the eating of or drinking of blood was strictly prohibited by Old Testament law. Leviticus 19 verse 26, you shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. So the drinking of blood or the eating of, of bloody meat was right up there with fortune telling and omens. I want you to notice something that I found very fascinating that I had never seen before in this passage. Notice the words feed and drink or feeds and drinks in verses 54, 56, 57, and 58. They are all present participles indicating that the feeding And the drinking is a continual intake of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a one-time thing. It's not, oh, I made that decision when I was a boy in Sunday school. It's not, oh, I prayed that prayer, you know, back there and so and so. It is a continual feeding and drinking. The word, the word feeds literally means to chew or to munch. Now get this last one. Or to eat audibly. Now what does that mean? How do you eat audibly? Well, we've all done it. You're hungry. You, you would use the word starving. I'm starving. I need something to eat. And so you <clears throat> you sit down at the table. The food is brought to the table. And the aroma of the food hits you. And you put it on your plate. And it happens in several different ways. You dig your... After you've said the blessing over the food, you take your fork or your spoon and you put it in your mouth and you begin to chew it and you begin to, to assimilate it and you swallow it. And several things happen. Sometimes it's a, it's a, just a breath. A breath that shows satisfaction. A breath that says to your brain, I've, I've taken in nourishment and it is supplying energy to my body and that comes out in a, or it could be, it could be audible noises like, Mm. Mm. Sounds of pleasure. 
in taking in food that is good to the taste and good for nourishment, satisfying to the body. This is the idea that Jesus is getting across to these Jews. That it's not a matter of just knowing who He is. It's not a matter of just thinking or believing that He is a great prophet or a a great miracle worker or a good person who did good things. It is a, it is a taking in of Christ and a, and bringing about a satisfaction to the soul of the individual that says Christ is everything. Christ is my nourishment. Christ is my energy. Christ is my life. The idea is Constantly taking in the person and work of Christ into the life of one who believes on a daily basis, just like one eats food and drinks water on a daily basis. This is why John used the participle. The participle is there to show the activity of those who have believed or those who believe. They feast on Christ. They drink in Christ. They want more of Christ, so they feed on Him. He is the genuine food from heaven, which indicates that all other forms of food or soul satisfaction are false. That's why He said, I am the true bread. I am the true drink. Everything else that one seeks for soul satisfaction is false other than Christ. Nothing else can satisfy. No other spiritual practice can bring life or contentment of the soul except Christ. He is the true food and true drink of God. This is explained in verse 56 where he says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So feeding on Jesus is the same as abiding in Jesus. We are in him. He is in us. We have been unified with Christ. We have become one with Him, both individually and collectively. This is the promise of union with Christ. John 14, verse 20, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. John 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him... It is he that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. This is a a profound mystery. And yet it was a very common theme in almost, it is a common theme in almost all New Testament books. For example, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Very familiar passage. Verse 17. 
2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. In Christ. That's the same as abiding in Him. It is the same as drinking in Christ. It's the same as feeding on Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you? Alright, so on one hand, he says we are in Christ. And on the other hand, he says that Christ is in us. So when, when you believe, God's Holy Spirit takes Jesus Christ and places Him in you. He lives in us. He abides in us. He has taken up residence in us. We are His temple. Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So our life is all about Christ who lives in us. Colossians 1.27 To them God made known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Finally, John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 24, Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God, and God in Him. This we know, by this we know He abides in us, by the Spirit He has given to us. Now in verse 57, John, Jesus divulges the source of His ability to make So many glorious promises. His life, Jesus says, is the result of the Father in whom He was unified with as one. In His high priestly prayer of John 17, Jesus said that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us. So Jesus Christ and God the Father are one. And his prayer is, is that all those whom the Father has given to the Son would be one, even as they are one. There will be a constant unification. When this body is gone and we have new bodies in heaven, it'll be like one big giant person. All made to be the same by the Lord Jesus Christ. The life that Jesus possessed was the same life that the Father possessed. That life was in the bread that the Father gave to the world, which was His only Son. Jesus said, the bread that the Father gives is that I give to the world is my flesh. He gave Himself as the bread 
That's why the illustration of eating and drinking is so important. If people don't eat and drink, they die. The life is in Christ. And it has to be nourished over and over and over and over again. And if you do that, you are abiding in him. And you have life through him. Now he said that earlier in chapter 5 verse 26. That the life of the bread he gave to the world. Which was his flesh. Was God's only son. For as the father has life in himself. So he has granted the son to have life in himself. So the bread it has life in it. It is not like earthly bread that sustains life only temporarily. It sustains life eternally. And there will never come a time in all of eternity when we cease to feed on Christ as the bread from heaven. Even in our glorified bodies, we will be constantly feeding on and feasting on Christ throughout all eternity. Now, this discourse was a sermon that was given for the synagogue at Capernaum. We're not sure that it was on the Sabbath day because there were, there were Sabbath meetings on both Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Jewish economy. So it could have been either one of those days. But we do know that there was a number of Jewish leaders there. These are the ones, no doubt, that were questioning Jesus, murmuring about Him, arguing about Him. But there were those present at the synagogue that day that had followed and learned from Jesus. They are called disciples. These are people excluding the twelve. These are disciples that had seen Jesus do the miracles. They had, they had watched Him as He taught. This brings about one of the main points, and, or may I say problems, of preaching in our modern, in our postmodern culture and society. And that is the failure of conveying the gospel clearly so people can understand it. The main part of that understanding is the very difficult and hard to accept truth that people must repent of their sins and accept the truth that Accept the truth and, uh, in order to be saved. They must repent of their sins. This is, a, this is a part of the message of the gospel. A main part that is neglected in our day. There are very few gospel preachers among the masses of preachers that even ever mention repentance. And yet, it was 
both the message of John the Baptist and Jesus when they came on the scene. In fact, Matthew chapter 3 verse 2 says that John came and preached, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. <clears throat> and then in chapter 4 of Matthew, verse 17, Jesus came and from that time he began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They preached the same message. John's message was a Christian message. It pointed toward the Christ and the necessity of people to repent of their sins. When the day of Pentecost came, the disciples left the upper room and came came out to preach to the crowd. It was a hard message, but an accurate one. The gospel is not an easy message. It is not an easy thing to tell people that they're lost in sin and they must turn from their sin and take Christ alone. That's not easy. It never was meant to be easy. The easy message is just whatever gods you choose, they're all the same. Doesn't matter. But that's a false message. They came out to the crowds. Acts chapter 2 verse 37. Now when they heard this they were cut to the heart. And the people said to Peter and the rest of the apostles. Brothers what should we do? And Peter said to them. Repent. Repent. What does it mean to repent? Repent means to change your mind. You change your mind about your sin. You change your mind about your view of God and of Christ. You change your mind so that you turn from your sin and walk a different direction. You leave the broad path and you enter the narrow path that is only found in Christ. command of God is to repent of sin and believe on Jesus. However, the unbelieving heart will respond to the preaching of the gospel, of that gospel, in a number of ways. Three to be distinct. First, when the the accurate gospel is preached with a message of repentance, some will mock And ridicule with open rejection. This is what the Pharisees and the religious leaders did of Jesus' time. They scorned his teaching and they insulted him in his person. Turn to Matthew 12 with me. See, this is why you bring your Bibles to church with you. It's not church unless you have your Bible with you or you have access to a Bible which is right in front of you in the pew. Chapter 12 of Matthew, verse 22. Now watch this carefully. When a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, He healed him so that the man both spoke 
and Saul. And the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? Now what are they saying? Their question is, Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the one that was promised from the line of David that will sit on the throne of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul. It's only by the God of the demons, Satan, that this man is cast out of demons. Can you imagine such a statement? Jesus then corrects them. How can Satan fight against Satan? If he fights against himself, he falls. Makes no sense. Their rejection of him was deliberate and open and blasphemous. And you find that sometimes. You, you talk about Christ to some people and they just are openly ridiculing you. They're ridiculing God. They're, they're deliberate in their statements. And it's, it's hard for a Christian to hear that because we want people to be saved so badly. And when they openly ridicule Christ and us because of the gospel message, it, it brings a sense of hurt and disappointment. So there is open mocking and ridicule. That's one way people respond. Secondly, there's another way they respond when the gospel, true gospel is preached. Others will seem to believe, but they have a faith that is only temporary and not genuine. Unfortunately, this has always been the case. You'll recall that Jesus' disciples at one point said, shall we call down fire on these people? Because they don't walk with us. They don't do like us. Shall we call down fire on them like Elijah did? And he said, you don't know what spirit you're talking with there. He said, no, leave them. In the end, the angels will separate out the wheat from the tares. And there are tares. There are tares all over. There are tares in every church. In the end, these kind of people do not last. They do not stay around. They cannot take the true message of truth from Scripture. They are like the seed that sprouts up quickly. In Matthew 13, when the thorns and weeds of the world come in, or persecution comes in, they are quickly choked and they die and they are gone. Did you know that there are people who used to come here every single week to worship until COVID hit? And then we didn't see them anymore. Why is that? What changed their minds? Now, maybe they went somewhere else to worship, and that could be the case. But I've often wondered about that. John spoke of such people who make their way into the church and seem to be a part 
of the brethren, but eventually they show that they're not. How do they show it? This is what First John, turn to First John 2.19. <clears throat> I don't want to be too hard on on this, uh, dogmatic on this, because there are legitimate reasons why some people leave churches. But if you're going to leave a church, you better be leaving for the right reason. And if you're not leaving for the right reason, you find yourself in sin, you become bitter, you become nitpicky. Is that a word, nitpicky? You know what I mean, don't you? Notice what he says, 1 John 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. Now, when it says they went out from us, the word out from is a little Greek word ek. It means out from the midst. These people were in the church. These people were known by others in the church. These people looked like everybody else in the church. And they acted like everybody else until something happened. Somebody said something to them. Somebody you know, offended them. And they're gone. Now, I'm not saying that everybody who leaves under those conditions is an unbeliever. But John said there were many. That were, and that's the reason they left. It was a decisive exit because they were not of us. They were not believers. And I believe there are many in that, in that place. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be made plain that they were not all of us. John writes, or Paul, Paul writes in 2 Timothy that Demas, in love with this present world, had deserted him and gone off to Thessalonica. God will sort it all out in the end. Here's a third and final response that happens when the gospel is preached. There are those who hear the gospel and they truly believe and they remain and they produce fruit that proves they're born again. However, from the masses of humanity, this is a very small group. You consider the population of the world And all of the people prior to us, the number of true believers is very small compared to the masses of humanity. Very small. Jesus said, the way is broad that leads to destruction and many go in there. But the way to life is narrow. The path is narrow. And there are only a very few that find it. Jesus, in fact, called his disciples his little flock. 
little flock in, in Luke chapter 12, verse 32. It was a small number that the father had been pleased to give the kingdom to. A very small number. Now, when we see in Revelation <clears throat> the, the multitudes in heaven <clears throat> that are countless, that's small compared to the numbers in hell of those who did not believe. It's very small. They believe those that are of this small number that God has given the kingdom to, they believe and they are securely in Jesus with a faith or a belief that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now get this, and they never stop believing. They endure. It's called perseverance. They persevere. They endure to the end. Even if it means death, they endure. They endure when they're persecuted. They endure when they're scorned. They endure when they're mocked and made fun of. They endure when they're beaten. They endure when they're murdered. But they're a small group. At the close of this message on the heavenly bread... The close of this was the culmination of Jesus' Galilean ministry. His ministry in Galilee is now coming to a close. The result of his work in Galilee was much hate and grumbling from the religious leaders and many false disciples following him. But there was a small group that remained faithful. Now look at verse 60. I know I didn't read verse 60 before. Let's read verses uh, 60 through... um, Let's read verses 60 through 71. Then many of his disciples, when they heard this, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them... Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you, they are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were that did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no man, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? 
He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was one of the twelve who was going to betray him. So now we have many disciples in verse 60. How many are we talking about? Don't know. There was a a large number. They had followed Jesus uh, when he went from the other side of the Sea of Galilee, where he had fed the 5,000, where he had done miracles and healed people of their diseases. They followed him to Capernaum. They are there now, and he, as he is teaching in the synagogue, the place must have been packed. He makes these very hard statements. Things that are hard to believe. Things that are astounding. Things that are scandalous. And many of them began to be very uncomfortable. Because the things that he is saying are so exclusive of everything else that he's talking like he's God. And he was. He is. And so many of his disciples, that word disciple, does not imply that all of these people were believers. There is such a thing as false disciples. People who play the game. People who know the lingo. People who know how to act around other Christian people. But they're false. The word itself, disciple, means a learner. Or one who attaches themselves to a teacher and becomes a student in that day. There were many teachers, religious teachers. And these teachers would... Walk the, walk the roads and they would have with them their disciples, their students. And they would walk along the roads and they would be teaching as they walked. Jesus used this same, this same technique. There were many disciples in the New Testament besides those that we are familiar with. For example, John the Baptist had disciples, Matthew chapter 9, verse 14. The Pharisees had disciples. The Apostle Paul was one of the disciples of the Pharisees. Taught by Gamaliel, who was a member of the council. Paul had disciples himself, we see in Acts chapter 9. Moses, even though he was dead, had disciples. We are Moses' disciples, they said. So Jesus drew large numbers of people early in his ministry who were there because of his spectacular works, because of the miracles, because of the power that he uh, demonstrated. But they were not true believers. So when he made these very hard statements about himself as the only true bread that must be eaten and assimilated... They did all what they did what all false disciples eventually do. They walked away. They left. They showed that they were not truly his disciples. Placing their faith and confidence in Jesus as the only one who could save them was 
too hard because it meant that they would have to give up being their own master. They would have to give up being the one who made all the decisions for their life. Independence can be a a scourge. Because people begin to think that they're the center of the universe. They are the master of their own destiny. And they're not. And so they, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now John uses the word here, the Greek word, skleros, hard, skleros. It's where we get our English term, sclerosis. And a sclerosis is a hardening of body tissue. Sometimes people get hardening of the arteries. It's a sclerosis. It comes from that Greek word. The Greek word skleros means rough, or withered, or hard. So figuratively, it means something that's difficult, something that is hard to bear, hard to believe. This phrase that they speak in verse 60, hard saying, who can listen to it, indicates that they finally understand what Jesus is saying. They finally understand that he is saying, I am the exclusive bread from heaven. You cannot live or have eternal life unless you take me and make me your Lord and your master. They finally got it. And when they got it, they said, wow, this is crazy. This is too hard. You mean I've got to give up my whole life for you in order to have eternal life? Yes. Jesus is very clear in in Luke chapter 9. Anyone who comes after me must what? Deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. You have to die to self in order to have life. It wasn't that it was too hard to understand any longer. They now understand it, but it was too hard to hear. I don't want to give up my life. I've had people ask me, you mean I've got to, you mean I've got to change this and quit that in order to be a Christian? Yes! You have to give it all up to Christ. He has to become Lord and Master. He is the one who calls the shots. You're no longer the master of your own life. He he becomes the master. It meant giving up their lives for Him. It meant carrying a cross and denying themselves. They understood it as an exclusive commitment to Jesus. And this became a huge stumbling block. And they walked away. MacArthur writes, their reaction is typical of false disciples. As long as they perceive Jesus to be a source of healing, free food, and deliverance from enemy oppression, and these self-serving disciples flocked to him. But when he demanded that they acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy, confess their sin, and commit themselves to him as the only source of salvation, they became offended and left. 
Now, I would have you to notice what is not included in the text here. And what is left out of this text is this. Jesus did not run after these disciples and beg them to stay. He didn't run after them. They were not of the they were not of the gifts that the father had given to the son. And they proved it by leaving him. Rather, he confronts their unbelief in verse 61 with a question. Do you take offense at this? Now, I think he's probably talking to them and to his own disciples, the ones that he had called, the twelve, maybe a few others. Do you take offense at this? It is a question that proves that he knows the hearts and minds of every person. He knows who are his. The Lord knows those that belong to him. And he knows those that don't. It wasn't the hardness of the teaching that caused their grumbling and murmuring. It was the hardness of their own hearts that caused this reaction. Their hearts were hard. And unbelieving. They would not come to him. They would not look to him. They would not believe on him and take him into their lives. And so they walk away. So Jesus makes another statement then about where he came from, where he was going, and how that would affect the unbelieving hearts of these people. It was a, that would be a greater, this thing that he's talking about would be a a greater thing than all of the message that he had just given them as the bread from heaven. But I don't have time to go into that this morning. That's for next week. What do we see from the text today? Here's what we see. That there is more to faith than just admiring or thinking kindly about Jesus. Salvation is not just thinking good thoughts about Jesus or admiring Him for a miracle worker. That's not salvation. You could say that about any number of people that have lived. People have no problem viewing Him as the baby in the manger at Christmas. Even unbelievers sometimes will put up nativity scenes in their yard or in their house. Or seeing him as a social reformer with a broad message of love and tolerance. They have no problem with that. They have no problem with seeing him as the ideal human for everyone to emulate. Or seeing him as a source of health, wealth, and prosperity and worldly happiness. They have no problem with those things. But they are unwilling to brace and embrace The biblical Jesus. The God-man who fearlessly rebuked sinners and warned them of eternal hell. And that salvation from hell comes only through believing 
his words. Those who resist or reject Jesus' teaching will fail the test of true discipleship. That's why the Bible is so important. Because this is the word of Christ. The words of God. It is here that people find life. It is this that the Holy Spirit uses and nothing else. To save the souls of those whom the Father has given to the Son as love gifts. Are you one of those this morning? Is Jesus Christ your Lord, your God, your King, your treasure, the satisfaction for your souls? Or are you seeking all kinds of other things to fill that emptiness Christ is the answer. But you have to take all of him and you have to reject all of you or you can't have any of him. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this Lord's Day and for the message of the gospel. We pray, Lord, that you would, that you would teach us through it. We know that There are so many perversions of the gospel out there today that they don't become the gospel at all. I pray that we would learn the difference and stand firmly for the truth of the true gospel that Jesus Christ alone, faith in him alone, and repentance of sin saves people from their sin and their fallenness delivers them from judgment and hell. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us those things. Remind us. At this time of year when it seems like all of society goes just a little bit crazy, may we remember that that babe in the manger is our Lord, our God, our King, our Savior, our Sovereign Lord, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.